All right, so as I said tonight, we'll be looking at the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is typically probably the most debated of all the covenants uh, because people start debating about grace, law, trying to understand how these two things go together. So tonight, kind of in that thread of biblical theology, that's what we've been studying for those of you, this is your first time, we've been looking at that grand sweep of Scripture, the grand narrative of Scripture, kind of the storyline of Scripture of God's redemptive purposes as, the, as they've played out through history. And so with that in mind, that's how we're going to look at the Mosaic Covenant, is through what God has done with Israel, making a covenant with them, uh, calling them to be obedient to the law. What does that look like in light of God's salvation purposes that we've already been seeing play out because that's a lot of times what people make errors when they understand the mosaic covenants because they don't understand it in light of the grand redemptive story and that's what's so important for us to understand the mosaic covenant just like all the other covenants but i think this one especially because there is so much confusion with the mosaic covenant all right so as we look at it tonight i hope that that will be helpful as we we tie the law into the storyline and that's what we're going to try and do tonight is tie that law into the storyline so we can understand it better. But as I said, the differences in understanding the Mosaic Covenant has, has caused quite a bit of divide throughout church history. Is how do we apply the law? What does obedience look like for the Christian who is not Israel under the Mosaic Covenant? And so I'm not going to be able to answer all those questions tonight with what we're doing, but I think that the storyline will help shed some light into it so that you can better understand it and put it in its proper place. But as I said, this has been throughout the history of the church. We look at even in the Bible, in Acts 15, that's exactly what brings the church together in Acts 15. They come together at the Jerusalem Council in order to debate what Gentiles need to do to be brought into the church. Do they need to get circumcised? Right? What, what, what do they need to do? Do they need to do other things, of parts of the Jewish law, in order to become part of the Christian church? And so the leaders of the church come together at the Jerusalem Council, and they come up with a verdict on this. But again, so even in the early church, they're trying to distinguish law and gospel. They're trying to figure out what aspects of the Mosaic Covenant still apply and what do not. Then we look at one of the first heresies in the early church. Many of you may know the name Marcion. He's one of the first prominent heretics in the early church, uh, well written about. What he did is he comes up with his own canon. So he didn't agree with the God of the Old Testament. He didn't like his justice and his judgments and his holiness and righteousness that we see in the Old Testament. So what does Marcion do? He says that the Christians do not need the Old Testament. So he cuts it out of his Bible. Then he goes on and he abridges Luke. It's pretty much the only gospel that he keeps it somewhat intact at all. The rest he just kind of discards. So he takes excerpts of Luke, some of Paul's writings, because obviously we see some writings of Paul that he's against the law is kind of what it uh, kind of looks like as he's battling back against Judaizers. And so Marcion comes up with his own Bible, basically, that has a little bit of Paul's writings, a little bit of Luke, and completely discards the Old Testament because he can't reconcile God's judgment, his justice, the law, and all these things. And so again, he, he comes up with his own Bible. He becomes excommunicated from the church. And again, one of the, those first prominent heretics of the church. And what does he do? He goes and becomes a missionary of his teaching and founds many churches. And so that Marcion heresy is something that kind of pops up throughout the church history, to be quite honest with you. And many Christians today, though they may not know it, are functional Marcions. Because what they do is they have no place for the Old Testament. They don't understand it. They don't understand its storyline. They don't understand uh, its purposes and how it leads to Jesus and, and teaches us so much. 
and or they are antinomianism. And so basically antinomians, they hate the law in a sense. They're anti-law. They, they, they think that grace and obedience are completely divergent ideas. And so obedience is anti-grace and anti-gospel is what many Christians, and I'm sure many of you have, have come across Christians somewhat like that, where they think that when you're under grace, you no longer have to be obedient to God. Uh, and so these things creep up throughout church history, as I said. And so as we approach the Mosaic Covenant, I think it's important, as I said, to put it in the grand storyline of Scripture, to recognize that it's part of God's gracious purposes, that it's in line with the previous covenants of grace that we've been looking at. We've seen how gracious God is as he was gracious to Adam and Eve in the garden with Genesis 3.15. We saw his grace and his covenant to Noah. They wouldn't flood the earth again. And then with Abraham, as we saw last week, as God causes Abraham to fall asleep during that covenant-making ceremony with the animals torn in two, cut in two, and God's the one that, that passes through. As we saw, God's committing under himself that if this covenant is broken, I will be the one that dies. Well, whereas Abraham was asleep the whole time, right? He was a passive, a passive member of this covenant-making ceremony. So again, we clearly see God's grace in that. Then people get to the Mosaic Law, and they struggle to figure out where it is in the place of God's redemptive purposes. So what I'm going to argue tonight is that it's in line with all of what we've been talking about so far. It's in continuity with those covenants. Because what a lot of people will do is what they'll do is kind of pass over the Mosaic Covenant. They'll see God's gracious purposes to Abraham, and then they'll kind of pass over that and go straight to David and look at how God again, has this, this promise to David, this gracious promise to David that one will come, one who will rule. And what they do is they kind of bypass the Mosaic Covenant and see it as a separate thing that's not part of these purposes. So again, what I'm going to do tonight is hopefully connect it with God's redemptive purposes to the Abrahamic Covenant. And we'll see, I'm not just making these things up. We're going to see that the text drives us to see this. And then when we get to David next week, we'll see that the Davidic king in many ways is the administrator of the covenant. Of, of the Mosaic Covenant, of the law. And so there was, there was a place for the law with the Davidic king, and it's very key to their leadership. So as I said, that we're going to connect it. So what we're going to do is before we even get into Exodus, we're going to start in Genesis. So if you will, turn to Genesis 50. Genesis 50. Just to give you some background, we saw... The Abrahamic covenant played out in Genesis 12, 15, 17. Then that great sacrifice of Isaac that God stops and provides that lamb for. We see that beautiful scene. Then what God does is he reaffirms his promises to Isaac. He reaffirms his promises to Jacob. We see it very clearly that he reaffirms the exact promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And then we get that wonderful story of Joseph, this righteous son, uh, really, in many ways, Joseph is, is probably one of the most righteous, righteous figures in the Old Testament. Uh, we see nothing but righteousness as him as, as he is uh, in, in Pharaoh's household, in Potiphar's household. And we see this righteous son of God. Um, but again, and we're waiting for that seed to come. We're waiting for that one to come. We have that expectation. But then we arrive at Genesis 50 as the book of beginnings ends. So if someone read verses 24 through 26 of Genesis 50.
in Egypt. So we end in Egypt. We're waiting to be in that land. We're waiting for that seed to come. We're waiting for these promises of Abraham, and we're ending in Egypt with Joseph dead. There's this tension as Genesis ends. We're awaiting these wonderful things, but Joseph's now dead, and we're in Egypt. But what do the instructions about the bones teach us? What do they teach us? God's promises are true. And Joseph is trusting in those promises, isn't he? Joseph recognizes the promises of God, and even as he's dying, he gives them instructions for his bones. And you shall carry up my bones from here. He's showing hope in the promises of God. He recognizes the promises of God, and he's looking forward to them. And so even as Genesis is ending, hope seems lost. We're reminded of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph says, in him I have faith. In him I trust in his promises, even as we end. And that's the background as we open up to Exodus. And if someone will read Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. Verse 7 to chapter 1 of Exodus. What does that sound like? God's blessing. What else? Genesis. What else? Noah. How about Abraham again? So we're seeing this connection. Moses is the author. Moses wrote Genesis. We're seeing this similar language that God is continuing to bless his people. We're actually starting to see partial fulfillment. Because they are multiplying now. They are fruitful. And the land was filled with them. And so we're starting to see this story play out. But even now, Moses is connecting us to God's creative purposes that continue to be reaffirmed among his people. So again, Exodus is already being connected back to that previous story that we've begun to unfold through Genesis. As God is, again, connecting these covenants connecting his purposes. These, these, these truths are not disconnected. These truths are not uh, just kind of haphazard or plan A, plan B, plan C. This is the plan of God as we're watching it unfold. And so then we turn to chapter 2. What ends up happening is we have a new Pharaoh. And that Pharaoh does not remember Joseph. That Pharaoh does not remember what God did through Joseph. How he preserved Egypt during this famine and what happens, he begins to persecute the people of God, the Israelites. And all the Israelite boys come under a death sentence. We're familiar with that story. They come under a death sentence. But what happens in chapter 2, we see this birth of Moses. And then Moses is put into the water. So if someone will read chapter 2, verse 3. So Moses is put into the water. Does anyone have the KJV or the New King, King James Version? New King James. What does it say for basket? An ark. So she takes an 
ark and puts pitch on it. Again, what does this now remind us of? Noah and, and the ark. There's actually a better word for basket. Most commentators will agree that this is a basket that Moses was put in. In Hebrew, there's actually a better word for basket that Moses could have used, but he chooses to use the word for ark. And then what does he do? He also described the same events that Noah is instructed to do of putting pitch in the ark as what Moses or Noah was instructed. Now Moses' mother is, is doing this act, and Moses is being saved from the waters. And so again, we're seeing these connections happen just as we saw Noah as, as a new Adam. We're seeing Moses in some sense as, as a new Adam again, that God is going to save him from the waters, from the flood. And we see another gracious act of God when there's a death sentence upon the sons of Israel. And then we see the naming of Moses in verse 10. So she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So again, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament specifically, we see that names matter. Names mean something as they gave them names. And we see this hope because I drew him out of the water. So again, re recognizing that he was saved from the waters. Again, so we're seeing these connections happening. And the Israelites are struggling and the Israelites grown out to God. And so then we're confronted with them as they grown out to God in Chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. If someone would like to read those for us, please. So what does God remember? His covenant, his commitment, his commitment that he made to Abraham, he remembers it. So what are the basis of his actions in the Exodus? His promises. So his promises that we've already seen are the basis for his actions. Why? Because they call out to him, and what does he respond according to? He responds according to his promises. He responds according to this covenant that he made with them. And so that's exactly the context of the Exodus. And so already we see that we're in line with the promises of God, that as God's dealings under the Mosaic Covenant will be in line with his dealings with his people. So as we continue, chapter 3, verse 6, we see the same thing. So chapter 3, verse 6, And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is Moses at the burning bush. God's revealing himself to Moses, and he describes himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses has this amazing response that teaches us so much, but he hides his face. Again, Moses understood the holiness of God. As Brian preached two weeks ago about the ark and Uzzah, and recognizing the holiness and transcendence of God, Moses recognizes this. And so God goes on to continue to explain himself. And in verse 15 of chapter 3, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
So how is he to be known? I am. I am the God. But he continues in saying, the Lord of your fathers, right? And so part of this identity of who he is is he's the God of the promises. So he's, again, even as he's explaining who he is to Moses, he references his promises to Abraham. And so, again, we're seeing that God's actions in the Exodus, God's actions in saving them are rooted in his promises. So, again, this isn't me trying to connect this covenant to the previous administrations. This is exactly what Moses is doing in the text. This is what God is doing as he's revealing himself as the God of the Exodus. He's the faithful God of the promises. He's the one that will deliver Israel. He's pointing back to the certainty of his promises, which should give them confidence that they will be delivered from their bondage. So then we go, we keep turning, we go to chapter 6 of Exodus. Verses 3 through 7, Moses writes, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. So we saw that in Abraham last week as he revealed himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But then he goes on to say, but my name, the Lord, this is Yahweh. So whenever you see that all caps, Lord, Typically, most translations, that's because it was Yahweh. It, this actually teaches us something amazing. Because the Jews, what they would do, God revealed himself as Yahweh, but they called that the holy name. And so when they, saw, when they heard Yahweh or saw Yahweh, they would write Adonai. They would write it out, the Lord. They would never, or they would never speak it. And so basically, they would never speak the holy name of God. So that's why you have Lord there, even though it could say Yahweh. Because they recognized the holiness of this name, the holiness of God, and so they would insert Lord when it was Yahweh. They would basically, if they were reading it in the temple, they would have said Lord. So again, he's saying, but my name, the Lord, I did not reveal to them, but I'm revealing it to you. And he goes on to say in verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land. So again, we're seeing those promises being reaffirmed. The promise of land, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Again, God is, God is thinking covenantally. He's speaking covenantally to his people. And so he goes on to say, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched hand or an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. Again, I will deliver. I will redeem. God is promising himself, and he's promising that he'll be the one that does this. He will be the one that acts. I will be the one doing these things. And then he goes on to say, I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This is so important to the Old Testament, is God is making a people. God is drawing a people unto himself. And so his covenantal relationship is about forming a relationship with these people. And he's saying, that's exactly what I do. I will do with you. I will save you, and I will make you my people. And that's exactly what he's about to do. And so we, we know the story, but as we flip forward to chapters 12 through 14, as we continue looking at this narrative, we see the Passover, we see the Exodus. We're familiar with that story where the firstborn in Egypt will die, but those who trust in the blood of the lamb, the spotless lamb that put it on their do doorpost, 
will be saved. So again, we see already these truths coming about of the spotless lamb dying on their behalf so that they may be saved. And that's exactly what happens. And so then in 14, we see Moses again going into the waters as the Red Sea parts. And the Egyptians are judged, but the Israelites will be saved. So again, as the flood comes down upon them, God redeems Israel. He saves them through the leadership of Moses. But again, we're seeing these events kind of in similarity to previous events as God judges them with, in a sense, a a small-scale flood. So then we can start getting forward to 19. Chapter 19 is where we're getting to be at Mount Sinai. We're getting closer to that covenant-making ceremony. But it's important before we get to chapter 19 and 20 that we understood the backstory. That we see that the God who makes a covenant of law with this people is first the God that saves them. Is first the God of the promise. Is first the God that promises himself to act and to deliver them and to work on their behalf. And that's the light that we have to see this covenant in before we start talking about the Ten Commandments and all the stipulations of the law. And so again, that backstory is so critical to all of this. And so as we turn to chapter 19, we'll start in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Again, we see this emphasis on, I bore you on eagles' wings. I brought you to myself. I'm the one acting. I'm the one doing these things. Even in verse 1, as we look at them going out of the land, They never would have left the land if God hadn't brought the plagues upon Egypt. If God hadn't have acted in the miraculous ways in which he acted, they never would have left that land. But it's God who acted on their behalf, and it's God who has brought them out of there. And so as we start seeing the covenantal commitments, we see them in light of the God who's acting on their behalf. And so he goes on to say, Now therefore, in verse 5, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Again, we're starting to see God is starting to give them the stipulations of this covenant. But it was God who brought them to himself. It is God who is making them a treasured possession among the peoples on the earth. And I think what's helpful is looking at Deuteronomy and looking what Deuteronomy says about this idea of them as a treasured possession, as a kingdom of priests, which is what the next verse says. So if you will, turn with me to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7 is Moses, in many ways you could say, preaching the covenant to the people of Israel as they're about to enter the land. Moses will not bring them into the land, so what do they do? They renew the covenant, and Moses, in a sense, preaches the covenant to the people, preaches these stipulations to the people. So he's learned so much more, in a sense, in Deuteronomy um, from the Exodus and from the events in the Mosaic Covenant. But if someone, chapter 7, someone will read verses 6 through 8, please. 
Thank you. So let's kind of walk through this. Verse 6, why are they who they are? The Lord chose them. So there are people holy unto the Lord, but it's because the Lord chose them. They're a treasured possession, but God chose them out of the other peoples. Again, we see God has chosen them out of these other peoples. Then in verse 7, why is it not because of? Because they're number. It's not because you were great. It's not because you were a big deal that you're being saved. If anything, it's actually the opposite. So then in verse 8, why was it because of? Love and his oath. Again, we see God's graciousness in his, in his love and then in his covenantal commitments. This is why God is acting. And so Moses is teaching them these truths. This is why God is acting, because he's chosen you. He's acted on your behalf. He's done all these things because he loves you. He's set his love upon you, and he's committed himself to you. That's why he's doing this. This is why you're to be a treasured possession. So then verse 11 of Deuteronomy, now that we have that understood, how are they to respond? Someone read verse 11. take care to do these things now but again it's in light of their choosing it's in light of God acting it's in light of his sovereign grace and his sovereign salvific acts that he's brought about for these people now in light of those things be obedient now live being the people I've called you to be now live being the people who I'm already making you right so now as we let's turn back to Exodus turn back to Exodus 19 please So yes, we do see that continuation in the blessings will be, in some sense, dependent upon their obedience. But oftentimes, we make a, a big mistake because what we do is we drive a huge wedge between obedience and blessings and obedience and grace. And as we just saw in Deuteronomy 7, obedience is a response to God's grace. God wasn't gracious to them because they were already obedient. If anything, God called them out of those peoples. And so, again, obedience is a response to what God has done. It is in gratitude and love and grace. And also in God's economy, obedience is blessing. And a lot of times we don't see it that way. We see obedience as a burden. We see obedience as a bad thing. But obedience is a blessing. It actually leads to the life of joy. It actually leads to a fruitful life. It leads to blessings for us to be obedient. I have a daughter now who's about 14 months old, and we're starting to see that disobedience in her. And we didn't teach her to be disobedient, but it's, as the Bible would describe, it's something that's part of her sin nature, is what we would understand. But what's interesting is her in light of obedience, right? We are trying to get her to be obedience, obedient as a blessing to her. If only she would see it that way. So quite often... She'll be about to do something she knows is, is wrong, and she'll look over to me and Amelia, and she'll kind of smile at us to see if we're going to stop her. Because to her, disobedience is almost comical at this point. It's fun. Or sometimes when she's about to be disobedient, we stop her and we tell her to stop, and she starts crying or getting upset. She becomes pouty. 
Because to her, obedience is a burden. To her, obedience is not a joy. It's a restraint, right? It's something to her that is not joy. But not touching that oven is a joy, is a blessing. Or not doing something that would get her hurt is certainly a joy and a blessing. But she doesn't understand that yet. She doesn't have wisdom and perspective to understand that obedience is a joy. And that's exactly what God is going to teach his people. He's working to teach them to be obedient. He's not going to save them because they're obedient, because they're going to continue to prove to be the opposite of obedient. But he's calling them to be the people that he's already made them to be. And so again, obedience is not the cause of grace, but grace has been shown, and so obedience is the proper response. And so the law is not a different path to salvation. And this is what a lot of people kind of see that Mosaic law. It's almost like, like this new path to salvation. And it's not that at all. Instead, it's, a, it's an external expression of God's will, God's character, God's goodness, His holiness, His righteousness. And it's a, an expression of how we are to live if we are to be His holy people who are set apart. But they're about to get a lesson in holiness as we know the story of Israel. That's exactly what the law is there for. It's going to give them a lesson in holiness and righteousness as they continue to fail in the covenant obligations that they have. God is going to teach them about sin. He's going to teach them about holiness, righteousness. He's going to teach them about atonement through the law. And they're going to see these truths as we're pointed forward to that one that would come that actually could be obedient, that will be obedient, the one that will die in their place. But the law is pointing forward to those truths. And so unlike creation, a lot of people try to tie the Mosaic Covenant back to creation before the fall. Because before the fall, they're, they're given one command of which they fail at, but that law was given before they sinned. The Mosaic Law is given in light of sin, and that's how we have to understand it, is that the Mosaic Law is given in light of their sin nature, in light of the fact that they will not be obedient, in light of the fact that they're rebels to God. And so those truths have to be understood when we understand the Mosaic Law. And that's why God gives them provisions under the Mosaic Law. Though the Mosaic Law calls for perfection, there's atonement. There's means of grace that are given in the Mosaic Law. And so, again, it's this law that's given to a people already in sin. But it's given to them so that they would be a people unto God. It binds them together as a people committed to their God. And again, that's the context as we get into the commandments in chapter 20. So tw chapter 20 gives us those commandments that, again, we're so familiar with. But we can't teach them outside of the gracious provisions of God. And we see commandments about how we are to respond to God in worship and understanding and how we see him, how we worship him, how we love him, we put him before all things. And then we also see how we're to respond to man. And that's why Jesus can sum up the commandments saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because that sums up what God is teaching them through the commandments. That is, they're supposed to be a people set apart. They're supposed to live a certain way. They're supposed to cherish their God and worship him above all else and love their neighbor as themselves. And so that's what God is doing with these commandments as he's setting this people apart, as he's calling them to live as a unique people, a kingdom of priests, his treasured possession. And that brings us to the covenant, covenant ceremony of chapter 24. 
So if you will turn with me to 24, that brings us to the actual ceremonies. We saw that ceremony last week with Abraham and God as they cut the animals in two, as only God passes through. We see something different this time. So chapter 24, turn with me, chapter 24. Someone will read verse 8. So as I said a couple weeks back, a covenant is a blood oath, a blood commitment unto death. What's different about this from the Abrahamic? Moses does it, yeah, that's a good point. What else? Specifically about the two parties. What's that? Israel's a little more involved this time. We see this time the blood is on the people. Blood is on the people this time, whereas with Abraham, he doesn't have to pass through. He doesn't pass through that blood commitment, that blood oath. Instead, it was God that said that he would take upon himself those covenantal curses. And we'll see that in Deuteronomy as Moses explains the covenantal curses that will happen to the people if they're not faithful to this covenant. And so as this people is not faithful to the covenant, the curses this time will come upon them for covenantal unfaithfulness. And then we see this beautiful scene, though, in verses 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Again, this beautiful scene. They go up there and it's described as a pavement of sapphire. I had the opportunity for a couple years. I worked for a a company that sold exotic granite and marble and things like that. We sold very large slabs. And we'd have some slabs uh, that were very, very exotic material. Some of them you could put like lights behind and even a couple centimeters worth of stone, you could still see the light through them. And so people would do just the most amazing displays with those. But they would be a couple hundred dollars per square foot for some of these, these exotic stones. And when they came in on the truck, we were just extremely careful trying to maneuver them around. We didn't crack them or break them because you're talking a couple thousand dollars just for one slab. Some of them could be $10,000 for a slab. And so... You know, we're, we're trying to maneuver them really carefully. But there are these amazing pieces that you could just see that people would, would create the most beautiful scenes with them. But they go up there and they see it's described as a pavement of sapphire. Just this beautiful display of God. And what do they do up there? They behold their God. They behold their God. And they eat and drink. So God has called them up there to have fellowship with himself up there. He's called them to his table to eat and to drink. God is again restoring communion with his people as they've been kicked out of the garden and and we're we're longing to return to that garden. We're, we're, We're longing to behold our God, to return into his presence and to eat at his table again. We see a foretaste here. We see a beautiful foretaste of which we'll see come to fruition as Jesus will usher us into that new covenant, and Jesus says, come to my table and eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. 
So as he inaugurates that new covenant, he asks us to come and to dine at his table. And those in the new covenant that we would commemorate, that we would continue in doing that as a church. And so already we're seeing God is, is working to restore communion with his people. And then he continues to give Moses more and more stipulations. And by the time we get to Exodus 32, we get the terrible event of the golden calf. We've seen different laws he gives them. He talks about the Sabbath, talks about different rituals. And as he's coming down the mountain, the people have done this terrible thing. They've created a golden calf out of gold. So immediately after they do the, the ceremony, immediately after Moses is on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, they go up there, or they're down there, and they make this golden calf with Aaron. And they say this of this golden calf in verse 4. They say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What a terrible statement. We know that it was God that did. It was God that acted on their behalf. It was God who had done all these things. And as they're down there at the bottom of that mountain, they're now giving credit to this golden calf that they've made. And then it says, verse 6, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Again, just like we saw in Genesis God would do these amazing acts, and what do you see? You see the Tower of Babel. You see different events happen that break into the text and just remind us of our inability to be faithful to our God, our inability for us to do this ourselves apart from his grace. Because again, the people have failed. This idea of eating and drinking is kind of like what we in our day would say, like kind of partying. Right? Most likely getting drunk down there, rising up to play his idea of sexual immorality. So again, just like we saw with Adam with kind of that nakedness, that eating of the fruit, then in Noah, we saw his exposed, being, exposed as being naked, that humiliation. We saw him getting drunk. Again, we're seeing this drinking of alcohol, this drinking of the vine, and again, this promiscuity and nakedness and shame. And so again, we're seeing man do exactly what man has continued to do despite God's sovereign grace. And we're still left waiting for more. But then Moses intercedes. And so we'll read verses 13 and 14 of chapter 32. 13 and 14, please. So the Lord relents. And why? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and your servants, to whom you swore your own self. So again, they understand, Moses understands this idea that God has committed himself to this. That it's God who is faithful to his covenantal commitments, and Moses calls upon this. Moses says, Lord, remember. Remember what you promised. Don't destroy this people, even though they clearly 
deserve it, even though they clearly des deserve to be destroyed. And then they renew the covenant in chapter 34. And by the end of Exodus, we see a slight hint of obedience as God has taught them about the priesthood, again, making provision for their sin, making provision for their failure. We see them actually build the tabernacle and build the ark. And by the end of it, the glory of God comes upon them. The glory of God dwells with them. And so we're ending much more hopeful than we saw as Moses came down that mountain. But as we'll soon learn, they will not continue in this. They'll go into the land and they'll fail again. But first they'll stay in the wilderness for 40 years. An entire generation will die off. And so we'll see again continually their disobedience to the law of God. And in Deuteronomy, as I talked about, there was blessings and cursings. And even those cursings were meant, they were meant for them as a means of grace. Because those cursings were meant to draw them back. You see a progression in the cursings when you read Deuteronomy. Is that they start out being kind of bad, and then they get really bad. And so as you watch these cursings progress, there are mean for, means for them to return. Almost like a barometer or a thermometer. They would start to see that it's getting hot in Israel, that things are getting bad, that as these cursings are coming upon us, God is calling us back, and that's why he would send his prophets. And in many ways, you could see the prophets as those that are preachers of the covenant, those that are preachers of the curses, as they're trying to draw them back to faithfulness. The prophets are coming as a means of grace to the people, but of course, none of them listen to the prophets. And we're left waiting for that one that will come, that one that will be obedient, we're waiting for that seed, that one that will be perfectly obedient to this law that they will continually fail at. The one that took the curse upon himself that we saw in Abraham. And that's why Jesus can say that he has not come to abolish the law. Instead, in Matthew 5, he says, I've, I've come to fulfill it. And he says, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an, not an iota or a dot will pass away from the law until it's accomplished. So Jesus is pointing to himself and showing, I am the fulfillment of these things. I am the one in whom these things point. And that's exactly what Paul teaches us in Galatians 3. He talks about the law as a guardian. In a sense, as one that was looking after us. One that was, was guarding us and teaching us about that one to come. Showing us our inability to work out this law in our own strength our inability to be righteous by the law. And so when Paul talks negatively about the law, it's because there are those that are trying to look at the law as though it's works-based, but it was never meant to be. Justification was always going to be by faith, as Paul reminds them through Abraham. And so this law was their, it was their guardian. It was that one looking after them, driving them to the cross, leading them to recognize that one that perfectly fulfilled it. And that's what we'll see as we will continue to see this law evident in Israel through the Davidic kingship and ultimately fulfilled in Christ as we continue our study. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you did indeed send one who was obedient. We are people who would not be obedient in our own strength, Lord, but yet you've given us your spirit and you've saved us by your grace, and I pray that we would be a, a people that in response to your calling, in response to your grace and salvation, that we would be obedient 
to the life that we're called to live as a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, a, a treasure of your own possession, Lord. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.